Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the body of peace, in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to you, to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, you mean for us not only to behold your glory, but to work your glory into our manner of living. You mean for us to live in such a way as to make you look as you are, beautiful, gracious, kind, forgiving, compassionate, patient, long-suffering, and eager for unity. And so, Lord, how I pray that you would use this message, use my words and use the meditations of our hearts, Lord, to shape us more and more into your image. Let us not be a people, Lord, who delight to think about theology, but who don't delight to live in the way that you would have us to live. Help us, Lord, know the joy of being Christians by applying these things to our manner of life. Lord, our spirits are willing, but our flesh is weak, so we pray for your help now. I pray that by your word and by your Holy Spirit, you would come in here and minister to every single person in this room that's hearing the word of God this morning. Lord, I can speak the words, but only you can access our hearts. Only you know the hairs on our heads. Only you know our comings and our goings. Only you know our pain and our joy. Only you know our failures and our triumphs. You know it all, Lord. And so I pray that you would take my words again, I pray, in the meditations of our hearts and use them to shape us into the people that you're dreaming of us to be. We give this time to you, Lord, and we give ourselves to you, and we trust not in a church or in a man, but in the Lord our God. We trust in Jesus Christ. So, God, give us humble hearts now before you, I pray, and use your word for the glory of your name. And it is in your great and gracious name that I pray. Amen. Well, for the past ten months, we have been working through the book of Ephesians together, and we're going to return to that study this morning. And as I have said to you before, in my view, the book of Ephesians is divided almost exactly in half, and it's governed by two main sentences, theses, if you will. The first one is found in chapter 1, verse 3, and it goes like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Isn't that an amazing thing to say? It's past tense. He has blessed us in Christ with everything that we need in the heavenly places, not just earthly blessings, but heavenly blessings. And then Paul goes on in chapters 1, 2, and 3 to explain what he means by that sentence. He goes on to show us and give us a glimpse into the glory of what God has done for us in Christ. He tells us that God has chosen us in Christ and predestined us for adoption in Christ, and forgiven us our sins in Christ, and lavished grace and wisdom and insight upon us in Christ. 
and sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit in Christ and promised to come again and get us and take us to heaven forever and ever in Christ. And He's made us alive with Christ, raised us up with Christ, seated us with Christ. He's given us good works to do that will glorify His name in Christ. He has united Jews and Gentiles together in Christ and together reconciled us to Himself in Christ. And probably most breathtaking of all for me, He has designed to make of us a dwelling place for Himself in Christ. We are the house of God and one day we will be in a more complete way the house of God, a dwelling place for Him. That's really breathtaking. Indeed, it's true to say that Jesus Christ, God Almighty, His Father, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's a true statement. And that's the first half of the book of Ephesians. The second half of the book of Ephesians is also governed by one sentence, and that's in chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I urge you to live your life in such a way that it reflects the worthiness and the glory of the truths that we have been studying in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. I urge you to magnify the beauty of what God has done in your life and in the world in the way that you live your lives. I, I urge you to reverence the reality that God means to make of you a dwelling place for Himself in the choices that you make and in your manner of living. If all that Paul said in Ephesians 1 through 3 is true, and certainly it is true, then we ought to strive with all of our hearts to live in such a way as though it is true. And so it is that Paul goes on in chapters 4, 5, and 6 to draw out what he means by the sentence. He shows us for three full chapters what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And Lord willing, we will begin this morning to consider that picture that he paints for us in some detail. And so with that, will you look with me again at Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, and we'll read all three verses. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's begin this morning by considering that word urge that's in the first uh, verse there. The word uh, urge in the original languages is a very strong one. It literally means to earnestly ask for or to plead with somebody or to implore people or even to urgently request. Or sometimes it can be translated to beg. So it's a very, very strong word. I urge you, I plead with you, I implore you, even possibly I beg you. It's the same exact word that Paul used in probably the most famous transitional sentence in the whole Bible, which is Romans 12.1. Paul said this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And the word appeal is the same exact word. I appeal to you, I urge you, I implore you, I earnestly entreat you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul is saying, based on everything I've said in Romans 1 through 12, now live your life in such a way as though it, that what I have said is true. And live your life in such a way that you make what God has done for you look beautiful. And in the same way as he did in 12.1, he is now doing in Ephesians 4.1 and pleading with us 
to live the kind of life that befits the things about which we have been talking for the last ten months. Paul was a man who had truly seen glorious, breathtaking, inexplicable things. He said in Romans, in uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians 12, you can correct me if I'm wrong, or you know what, I think it's actually 2 Corinthians 12, that he had been taken up into the heavens and seen things so glorious that he couldn't even articulate them. He had seen great and glorious things about the being of God and of Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit and the nature of the church and the nature of humanity and the destiny of history. And he felt, friends, he felt the weight of these things. He felt the significance of these things. He felt the eternality of these things. And what he's urging us in the fourth chapter to do is to feel that along with him. Not just to know the theological truths, but to feel the weight and eternal significance of these things. And friends, you know as well as I do that in our culture, we tend to make light of truly weighty matters, and we make weighty what are truly light matters, right? All you have to do is look at any tabloid show and you'll see that we greatly increase the significance of really stupid things, really dumb, not lasting things. And we tend to make light what things are really weighty. And what Paul is longing for us to do is to make weighty what God himself has made weighty and to feel that with him. And the thing is that the way we display the fact that we give weight to something is by our manner of living. It's not by the words that flow out of our mouths, but it's by the way that we live that we show if things are important to us. Let me give you an example. You can say easily that you believe in the Bible, that you think it's the Word of God, you think it came from God, you think it's the most valuable document in all the world. You can say all that. But if you don't read it, meditate on it, memorize it, study it, teach it, love it, then your words are just words. It's not until you do something that you show the weight and significance of something in your lives. So it is our manner of living that shows what's really important to us and not the words that come out of our mouths. Talk is cheap, as they say. And actions is what shows what we really believe and what we really value. And this is why Paul pleads with us. I I urge you, I earnestly plead with you, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And this is why he spends three full chapters of his time to paint for us a picture of what that looks like. He simply wants for us, friends, to meditate deeply and profoundly on the truths that are found in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 to the extent that they manifest in our manner of life. That's Paul's desire for us, and that's my desire for us, and it's the Lord's desire for us this morning. And so that's what I see in the word urge. Let's take some time now and begin to look toward the things, at the things toward which Paul is urging us. And if you look with me again at verses 1 through 3, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he lists five things. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the very first thing that comes out of Paul's mouth when he tells us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling is humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and a passion for unity. And what I want to do is this morning, and and by the way, I think that the first two things go together, uh, humility and gentleness, and I think the next two things go together, which would be patience and forbearance. 
And then all of them are driving toward unity, the subject of unity. So what I want to do this morning is consider the first two couplets with you. And then beginning next week, we'll start a whole series of messages on the topic of unity. Because Paul carries the theme of unity from verse 3 all the way to verse 16. It's a very significant thing in the mind of Paul, and there are many issues that arise there. And so we're going to spend several weeks, probably four or five weeks, thinking about that topic, both unity inside the church and unity with other churches outside our particular body. But for now, let's look a little bit at humility and gentleness. And let me mention before I begin why I think these things are coupled together. If you look there in verse 2 with me, you'll see that the word with is repeated. It says, with all humility and gentleness, and then, again, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And it was that repetition of with that first got me to see that perhaps these things are connected together. And I think as we talk about this, you'll see, as I do, that they really are couplets. So with that, let's begin by defining humility. Humility is an inward state of the heart. It's an inward thing. And it's born of deep contentment in God and deep Delight in God. Humility is a submissiveness of heart toward God and toward other people that's born of an awe in God. So seeing God for who He is causes a kind of submissiveness of our hearts. Humility is a proper self-assessment that's born of an authentic vision of who God is. So you see who God is. And then you see who you are. You properly assess yourself. You assess others well. You assess God well. But it's all born and it all begins at a vision of God. A few years ago, I think it was the summer of 2000, my family and I took our vacation full two weeks in the, in the redwoods in Northern California. Just an amazing experience to spend two weeks underneath those great tall trees. And uh, we camped there. We hiked there. We biked there. We played there. We slept there. It was wonderful. And uh, one day we went out to the oldest growth forest in the world and stood at the foot of the tallest tree in the world. 367 foot tall tree. Can you imagine that? It's a 37 story tree. And the thing was just so massive around. And I remember standing at the base of it, I couldn't even see the top of the thing. And I remember just feeling in awe. I remember feeling very humbled. And of course you know that in those forests some of the trees fall over, right? And then you can climb up on them and walk across them. (laughs) I just felt like a little ant walking across this big, huge, tall tree. Something about the enormity of those trees just put me in perspective. And it really humbled me. In fact, I I was just thinking about this last night. I remember coming back to our church after that and preaching the next Sunday. And one of the people uh, remarked to me how content I looked and how peaceful I looked. And the reason was because I had spent two weeks just basking in the enormity of these things and thinking about the enormity of God. Because God, as you know, is much, 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 much greater than redwood trees. Amen? He's much taller. He's much more significant. He's much more beautiful. He's much more worthy than redwood trees are. And if you catch a sight of who God is, just even a glimpse, as Aaron was saying, the Bible's correct. We look like through a glass darkly right now. We can't see Him exactly as He is. But if you even glimpse Him through glass, He will humble you. He is amazingly great, amazingly glorious, amazingly perfect in His manifold excellencies, and it will humble you. One day, the prophet Isaiah, perhaps you have read in Isaiah 6, saw a vision of who God is. The Lord granted him to see the Lord God Almighty with his eyes. And he saw the Lord, he said, high and lifted up. 
and he saw the train of his robe filling the temple, and he saw the smoke of the glory of the Lord completely filling the temple. And as he stood there taking it in, he saw the angels with his own eyes. He saw cherubim and seraphim with two eyes, they covered their eyes. With two wings, they covered their eyes. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And they all cried out in unison in a loud voice, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And the Bible says that Isaiah felt as they spoke like a thundering shaking of the foundations of the threshold of heaven. And he felt it all. He saw it with his eyes. He heard it with his ears. He felt it in his body. And what was his instant reaction? His intrinsic reaction that came not from a process of thought, but just poured out of his heart. He said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Woe to me. Woe to me. When Isaiah saw a vision of who God is, he also saw a vision of who he was. When Isaiah caught a sight of the glory and the greatness and the grandeur and just the sheer magnitude of God, he saw his own sickness, his own lostness, his own desperation, his own smallness. So being in the presence of God greatly humbled Isaiah and set him really on the course of the rest of his life. You know the reason Isaiah had so much courage in his ministry? Read the book of Isaiah. Next time you read it, think about how courageous this guy was. He faced down amazing things, life-threatening things, many times over. The reason he had no fear of man is because he had an adequate vision of God. And when you see a vision like that, it humbles you and you fear nothing but God. And so with us, when we see a vision of God, even just a glimpse, it will greatly, greatly humble us. Humility is an inward, submissive state of the heart that accurately assesses the self in light of a vision of God. So that means that the only true source of humility is a vision of God. People who do not know God cannot, by definition, be humble. Because humility comes from assessing myself in light of who God is. Now let's talk about gentleness for a moment. Talk about how that relates to humility. I think that gentleness is one of the main outward manifestations of a person who has a humble heart. Gentleness is a God-centered, caring concern for other people. Not a self-centeredness, but a a God-centered, caring concern for others that's born of a humble heart. Gentleness is an inward peace, a deep contentment in God that manifests itself in kind, caring concern for others and in calm assurance toward others. Gentleness, finally, is the ability to deal well with other people because God has dealt so well with us. And one way that you can see the the relationship between humility, which is an inward thing, and gentleness, which is an outward thing, is to think about their opposites for a second. So just picture in your mind with me for a second. Bring someone to mind, a person that you know, who is, generally speaking, an arrogant person. They're arrogant. They're all full of themselves. They think they're the cat's meow, the best thing since sliced bread. You know probably somebody like that, don't you? Call somebody to mind. Hopefully you're not coming to mind yourself. Just imagine an arrogant person. And think about how does that person manifest himself toward other people? How does that person treat other people? 
And generally, the traits that come to my mind is harsh, demeaning, demanding, rude, and just putting other people down. So arrogance is a state of the heart, right? And it manifests itself in harshness and demeaning behavior toward other people. In the same way, humility and gentleness work together. Humility is a matter of the heart. It's a proper self-assessment in light of God and in light of others. And when a, a person is humble, they manifest that self in a kind, caring, warm, embracing attitude toward other people. So gentleness is simply a manifestation of a humble, humble heart. Now, to be a gentle person is not to be a weak person or a spineless person or someone who can't stand up for themselves or someone who never takes a, a stand on an issue or someone who just lets everybody else walk over them in the name of grace and in the name of gentleness. That, that's not the picture of gentleness that the Bible would have us draw. The word gentleness in the Greek language can also be translated meekness. And perhaps you have heard that the best definition of meekness is strength under control. So a, a gentleness, meekness is not weakness, it's strength that is under control. And Jesus Christ himself is said to be meek. You can probably draw some passages to mind that say that. In fact, even Jesus himself said, I am meek and I am humble in heart. Now let's draw a picture of this meek Jesus. Probably when you hear the word meek Jesus, you think of that picture that I allude to every once in a while of Jesus really you know, a perfect-looking blonde European guy that's perfectly combed and looking off to the side and couldn't harm a fly. Well, that's not a picture of meekness at all. This same meek Jesus stared Satan down face-to-face in the desert in a way that you and I will never face Satan down, and he overcame him by the power of the Word of God. This same Jesus... Meek Jesus cast out demons from people and took on at one time an entire legion of demons. Remember that story? Sent him into the herd of pigs. This is the meek Jesus we're talking about. This meek Jesus just said the word and healed diseases and fixed relationships and healed all kinds of problems. This same meek Jesus rebuked his friends and his foes to their face when they needed that to happen. Not saying that he enjoyed doing it, but when he had to do it, he did it. He got in people's faces and rebuked them to their face. That's meekness, strength under control. The same meek Jesus took up his cross and suffered things that you and I could never imagine. Maybe you have seen that movie, The Passion, that came out a couple uh, years ago. That was the most amazing thing to help me picture in my mind what it looked like to be flogged, what it looked like to be hung on a cross. It was horrible. It was unbelievable what he went through there. And one of my favorite moments to meditate on his journey to the cross is when he fell under the weight of his cross. Do you remember that moment? He's walking down the road. He's all beaten up. He's got this cross on his shoulders, and he falls down under the weight of it. And the women who are following him begin to weep. And, and this man, in this deplorable state, absolutely weak and beaten, looks up at these women and says, Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. I mean, you talk about strength under control. Who can imagine suffering like that and having an attitude that was not self-centered? That's the meek Jesus we're talking about. And finally, not only did he conquer that, but he conquered death and hell on the cross for us. This is the meek, mild Jesus. This is enormous strength, friends. But he was perfectly in control of his strength. 
he was perfectly in control of himself. And that's why he could use his strength not to have to dominate others like arrogant people, but he used his strength to serve others. You remember when he said, I have come not to be served, but to serve. That's a picture of meekness. And he commends that to us as well as his followers. Listen, if you will, to Luke 22. Here's what Jesus said to us. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Or for us, we might say, you go to a restaurant, maybe it's a nice restaurant, Who's greater, the person sitting at the table paying the bill or the waiter that's coming? And Jesus said, undoubtedly, it's the person sitting at the table that's greater. And then he said this, but I, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, am among you as one who serves. I am among you as the waiter, not the person sitting at the table. That's a picture of meekness. Tremendous strength. I mean, we cannot imagine the power of Jesus Christ to speak this whole universe into existence and every second of every day to uphold it by the word of his power and yet to call himself a waiter, a servant in our presence. That's a picture of meekness. That's a person, a a picture of gentleness. A gentle person is not a wimpy, spineless person. A gentle person is a person who has been given strength by God and by the grace of God is in control of that strength and therefore does not need to dominate other people but is able to lay his life down to serve other people. It's a humble, gentle person that knows God and is satisfied in God and therefore has no need to dominate others. In light of the glorious, glorious truths of Ephesians 1-3, through the very first thing toward which Paul urges us is a deep humility, friends, that, that, that displays itself in a gentle attitude toward one another. And Paul really, really, really wants us to get this. And I know that because he emphasizes it in two ways. First of all, in Greek literature, usually whatever you put first is the most significant thing that you have to say. There's, there's always exceptions to every rule, but generally speaking, what you say first is the most important. And so in this long list of things that Paul draws out for us, in terms of what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, the very first thing that comes out of his mouth is humility and gentleness. And so he really wants us to get this. I think Paul would say that the primary thing that ought to mark a Christian person is a humble attitude. If you have seen anything of the beauty and glory of God, you will be a humble, humble, gentle person. The second way I know that he really wants us to get this is the word all. Look there in verse 2 with me. He says, I want to urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. Or the word can be translated much. With much, much, much humility. He wants our lives, friends, to be saturated with humility. We ought to be the most humble people on the planet because by the grace of God, we have been granted a vision of the beauty of God. So let us be humble people. That's Paul's first primary urging to us. And I think we'll see probably over the next how many ever months it takes us to get through the rest of Ephesians how humility works with everything else that he's going to say. Without humility, nothing else he's going to say will work. So we must begin by having a humble heart. Now let's move on. Talk about patience and forbearance for a few minutes. Just like humility, patience is an inward state of the heart that's born of 
contentment and satisfaction in God. Patience is an inward ability to constrain the self in light of irritable or difficult or trying circumstances. It's self-constraint born of grace from God. Finally, patience is a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or in the face of misfortune. That's patience, and that's the inward heart thing that we're talking about. Now, forbearance, or as Paul put it in verse 2, bearing with one another in love, is the outward manifestation of that patience. Forbearance is the exercise of self-restraint and tolerance that's in our hearts. It's the ability to love people when they're rude or harsh or demeaning or irritating or otherwise hard to deal with. And the reason I put it that way is because this term, bearing with one another, can and and might even should be translated to put up with. So Paul could have written this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, putting up with one another in love. Putting up with one another. Don't you just love how honest the Bible is? The Bible assumes that we're going to irritate one another and therefore we ought to put up with one another. The Bible is not this idealistic religious document. It's dealing with life on the ground as it is. And sometimes, am I right, we have to put up with each other. Is that right? Sometimes we irritate each other and we just have to push through and put up with one another and not give up and display our love for God by displaying our love with each other. Now I'll be very honest with you. One of the things that I've struggled with over the past 21 years of walking with the Lord And by the way, five days from now will be my 21st birthday walking with Christ. I'm so delighted to be a Christian. I love being a Christian today more than I did 21 years ago. It's a great privilege to call God my Father in Christ Jesus. But over these last 21 years, one of the things, probably one of the top three things that I have struggled with is impatience. Now, right now, Rachel and Kim are upstairs in the nursery, but I'm sure if they were here, they'd be shocked to hear that I struggle with impatience. They've never seen me be impatient, I'm, I'm sure of that. So, this was a joke, you can laugh, no. They've definitely seen me be impatient. They've also seen God grow me up greatly over the last 20 years, but, uh, but I've really struggled with impatience. And so, this week, as I've thought about this subject, I have not just approached it from a theoretical point of view or as just a pastor or a writer, but I've thought about it as a sinner and as a struggler. In fact, the Lord's sense of humor is so great. On Thursday morning, I was at breakfast with Aaron, and that's the day I usually write my sermons on Thursdays. And Aaron and I have breakfast every Thursday together to talk about worship and do discipleship stuff together, just get to know each other a little bit better. And I ordered my breakfast there, and things didn't go just the way that I wanted it to go. I wanted to substitute one thing for another, and the waitress said, no problem, but we'll have to charge you for that other thing. So I'm like, wait a second. I'm not going to eat the thing that you're not going to give me, but you're going to charge me for that and then charge me extra for the other thing. And it just didn't go well. I was not patient with her. I was not forbearing with her. I was not kind to her. Poor thing. She didn't create the policy. She was just there. I was really impatient with her that morning. And to my shame, I never went and apologized to her. I should do that. We meet at the same restaurant every week. So Aaron, maybe next week she'll be our waitress and I can tell her I was a jerk and God isn't like me. Um, but the upside of that situation was all day Thursday is I'm meditating on this stuff, thinking about this stuff, about humility, about gentleness, patience, forbearance. It allowed me to think about these things, not theoretically, but to really question my heart and to say, Lord, what is impatience? And why am I so impatient? What's at the heart of it? What's at the heart of this thing, Lord? 
And the more that I thought about it, and the more the Lord ministered to me that day, I realized that my impatience, and I think all impatience, is fundamentally due to a lack of contentment in God. If I had been more content in God that morning, if I had truly been more satisfied in Him, if my soul had been more nourished by Him that morning, I would not have needed to be so demanding and so self-centered and so impatient with other people. If I was satisfied in God, friends, I would view every circumstance, even irritating circumstances, as an opportunity to glorify God and build up my own soul, to mature myself, to be more and more like Christ. I would be less irritable and more thankful in all circumstances. And so as I thought through this on Thursday morning, I said to myself, you know what I need is I don't need more therapy to figure out why I'm still so impatient after 21 years of walking with Christ. Therapy is not going to help me. What I need is a better vision of God this morning. I need a clearer purer, more consistent vision of the Lord this morning. I need to get on my face before God and ask Him for forgiveness and also ask Him for eyes to see. I just needed to nourish my soul in God and how else do you do that but by the Word. And so that's what I did that morning. Before I went to my sermon writing, I just opened up the Word and I began to feast on the Lord and He really, really helped me that day. In fact, I know that He helped me because I also had a lunch meeting that day and things went a lot better. Uh, I was much more patient and kind much less self-centered that morning. So what I needed to be patient and forbearing was a better vision of God, and it really helped me. This is not a just a religious thing I'm saying, friends. I really mean it. There's a cause and effect here. The more you see the Lord, the more you will act like you have seen the Lord. I, I told one of my friends once who was dying to quit smoking, and he just didn't know what to do. And I told him, Ed, what you need to do is get a bigger, better vision of God. The more you do that, the more this stuff will just fall away from you. And in fact, that happened to him. He was able to quit smoking in that manner. And I think that works for just about any ailment, for every ailment. What we really need fundamentally is a bigger, better, clearer vision of God. And another thing I think that we need, and I certainly needed that morning, was to stop and think about how patient God has been with me over the years and how forbearing He has been with me. And let's be honest about it, just how much God has put up with me over the years. Do you relate to what I'm saying? If you, like me, struggle with impatience, or maybe you don't, but at some point you get impatient, it's just really helpful to stop for a while, open up the Bible, maybe to something like Ephesians 1 through 3, and read it slow enough that you can grasp how patient God has been with you, how gracious He has been with you. Just think through your walk with Him. And how many times you have done stuff that would justify him to just cut you off and cut you out of the family completely, and he didn't do that. Quite the opposite, he poured, he lavished grace upon you. And then as you get a clearer view of the mercy and patience of God in your life, it becomes a well that you can draw from to be patient with other people. You remember that story that Jesus told of the guy who was who owed a very large debt, probably like a million dollar debt if you put it into modern dollars. And he goes and he grovels before the guy to whom he owed the stuff, just saying, please give me more time, please give me more time. And the guy who was owed the money was so moved by his plea that he said, you know what? I just completely forgive you the whole debt. I forgive you. You owe me nothing. A million dollars. You don't owe me anything. Now what did that guy do in the parable? You remember? He went out in the street and he saw some chump who owed him 20 bucks. And he went over there and he choked him. Give me the bu- Give me my 20 bucks. Give me my money right now. I'm going to put you in prison. I'm going to take your stuff. This is just completely inappropriate behavior given what had just happened to him. In the parable, it was the same day. 
you just get forgiven this, and then you go out and treat somebody else like that. And, and that's the way we are when God is so patient with us, and then we're impatient with other people. And so what that guy needed to do and what we need to do is stop and think a little longer and a little harder on how patient God has been with us. And I just think a calm patience comes over us and gives us the power to be humble and thankful and patient with other people. And listen to me. I actually believe that God has deliberately put people into our lives to irritate us, to annoy us, and to get on our last nerve. I have a a very robust view of the sovereignty of God. So I meant what I just said. God put them in your life. He deliberately (laughs) picked out an annoying person for you and put that person in your life. Now, why in the world would God do that? And why would I think that God does that? For a very simple, loving, profound reason. He wants you to be more like himself. He is eminently patient with us. Amen? He's incredibly patient. God is infinitely forbearing with people who show humility to Him. It amazes me. I'm reading through the Jeremiah right now, and it blows my mind how many times God says to these people, after decades of, of trying to get them to repent, He says, still, if you will repent today, I will relent of all the disaster that I mean to bring on you. He's amazingly attracted toward humility. He really is. And He wants us to be like Him. He wants us to be patient like He's patient and forbearing like He's forbearing. That's the good news. The bad news is the only way to get patient is to have to exercise patience, right? You've heard people say, don't pray for patience because God might answer your prayer. Well, He will answer that prayer. The only way to be forbearing is to have to be forbearing and deal with people who are difficult, annoying, irritating, getting on your last nerve. I remember years ago, this was in the 90s, I worked for this guy who was a Christian and he was a very good friend of mine. We'd known each other for years and to this day we're, we're good friends. We're still in touch with each other. He owned a company and I worked for him. It was a very busy company, very stressful environment at times. Sometimes we worked long days, 15, 18 hours at times, day after day after day. And sometimes what this guy would do to get him through those long, long days would be to pound enormous amounts of caffeine. So he would get I'm, I'm serious, sometimes three to five tall triple mochas or triple lattes or whatever he got, and he would just pound them. Now, maybe you've been around someone who, who had that much caffeine on a regular basis. At times, it's like being around an alcoholic. It really is. And this guy would at times just fly off the handle, and he'd be really demeaning and demanding and almost impossible to be around at times, not all the time, but at times. And I remember one day in particular, he just I just got in the middle of his target somehow, and he was just so demeaning to me. Even when there were things that he was right about, he didn't need to say it in the way that he was saying it. You know what I mean? He was just really coming after me. And I actually thought to myself, after about 12 hours of this, I thought to myself, if he says one more thing like that to me, I just got to go. I'll be back tomorrow. I'm not going to quit, but I just can't take this anymore. I can't. I literally could not take one more statement like that that day. And so thank God he didn't say anything more to me for the rest of the day. I'm on my way home. I think it was that day. might have been the next day. I just, I just remember being on the freeway driving home, and I was praying for this guy because I really loved him. We, we had a great relationship. It was just at times things got difficult. And I was just praying, Lord, how can I help him to see what he's doing? How can I be a friend to him? How can I help him to change and treat people more in the way that you would have him treat them? And I sensed the Lord, as I processed that and prayed about it, I sensed the Lord putting a question on my heart that helped me so much 
And it has helped me to this day in many, many circumstances. And I'm about to say more than what I sense the Lord saying to me, but I'm just trying to explain it to you. The question itself is what I sense the Holy Spirit putting on my heart. It was as if God said to me, Charlie, you're right in your assessment of this guy. There are real issues here. And what he's doing really is hurtful to people. You're right about that. But, Charlie, here's what I want to ask you. What is it about you that cannot deal with the imperfections of this person, even when the imperfections are serious? You're a maturing man of God. Why can't you handle this guy? Jesus could handle this guy. What is it about you that can't handle him? I can't tell you, friends, how much that question helped me because it did not minimize the real issues in this other person's life. But for me, it put the focus where it belonged, on me. And so I was able to use that situation to learn how to deal with a difficult person in a way that really matured me and made me more like Christ. And I can't tell you how many times what I learned in that situation has helped me in in, in uh, subsequent situations. Especially as a pastor, it doesn't happen often, but every once in a while someone will come forward and just spew on you. You know, they just, for whatever reason, just think pastor equals spewable. So they will spew on you. And it's been so helpful to me, this question and that experience, to know how to love a person like that when they're being like that. It's helped me so much. That's why I say, God will deliberately put annoying, irritating people in your life to get on your last nerve, maybe even to hurt you, in order to cause you to be more like Him. He wants us to be patient. He wants us to be kind. He wants us to be forbearing. And there's only one way to get that. And that's to have to do it. And so God will deliberately put you into those circumstances. And what I want to encourage you this morning to do is when that happens to you, don't rebel against God. When there's someone in your life that's difficult, don't rebel against what God is doing. God has designs for that person being in your life. He has designs. He's a master craftsman. So open up the door of your heart to God. Let Him get inside of there and do His work. That's what He's trying to do. Develop the kind of disposition that you say when a difficult circumstance or a difficult person comes at you, you say, aha, God is trying to work something in me. That's what's going on here. This is not about me, not about this person. It's about God's work in me and about God's work in that person. He will do it, and if you'll let him do it, you will see the glory of the Lord in your very heart. So, Paul is passionately pleading with us, friends, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, to make the truths of Ephesians 1 through 3 look beautiful in the way that we live our lives. And the first four things that he says is, Christians, people who believe in Christ, who have been raised with Christ and are seated with Christ, be marked, absolutely stamped by humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. Make Jesus look beautiful in your manner of life. That's Paul's message to us today. And so my final exhortation to us today is let's be doers of the word and not hearers only today. God has given us each other to help put these things into practice. So let's do that. Let's leave out of this place today eager to put these things into practice and not just to know them in our minds. Let's be doers of the word and not hearers only. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, as I prayed at the beginning of my message, I pray again that you mean not only for us to see visions of you, but to, as it were, enshrine the visions we see of you in our manner of living, to let the holy temple 
in which we praise God Almighty to be our manner of living. So please come now and help us, Lord. Please come now and teach us. Our spirits are willing, God, but our flesh is so weak. So help us not to rebel against you. Help us not to resist you. But help us to allow you to come into our hearts and to do the work that you would have us do. Oh God, how I pray with all of my heart that you would give us eyes to see you. Give us ears to hear you. Give us hearts to receive you. Because Father, if we would just catch a glimpse of you, these things would begin to manifest in our lives. Just as when I stood at the foot of those redwood trees and felt humble, if we could stand at the feet of Jesus and see how great He is, it would greatly humble us. So please, Lord, hear my prayer. Make these things real in our lives, I pray. In the great and gracious name of Jesus, amen. you please stand with me and let me give you the benediction and then we'll be done for the morning. May the Lord God Almighty, who is humble and gentle and patient and forbearing and gracious with us, may He... Lift up His countenance upon you and smile upon you. May He bless you with peace and patience and humility in Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.